Oh. Or, turn or maybe off. turn it on. <laughs> you see, my guardrail this morning would have been turning that on and having them mute the channel. Um, guardrails. They, they're designed to, to minimize damage. Now, you may have experienced this firsthand. You may have seen some damage. I remember uh, being in college, and uh, I was at Bible college. We would drive up to Boston to intern at a church, and on our way back one night, it was late. It was after youth group, like 1130. I'm with a car full of people, and this weird thought hit my mind of, of you know, I haven't seen a car accident in a really long time. And, and no joke, about 30 seconds later, the car in front of me swerves, hits the guardrail on the side, and the whole car kind of goes up like 90 degrees on the side. He notices, swerves back, and there's like shrapnel pieces of the bumper and tire flying up in the air, sparks everywhere. He hits the ground like, like cutting his wheel 90 degrees, shoots off in the other corner, like goes off the road. And I thought to myself, well, I guess I'm good to never see an accident again. <clears throat> but that's what guardrails do. If you've ever experienced the, the guardrail or a guardrail, is that it minimizes the damage. It's designed to keep you from greater damage or from greater disaster. You might get a little injured if you hit a guardrail, but it might keep you from imminent death. So guardrails are designed to keep us safe. Now, you may be asking, why are we talking about guardrails? Like, I came to church, not to a driver's ed class. The news for you is, maybe you need a driver's ed class. Okay, no one's going to laugh. <clears throat> the reason we're talking about it this morning is because guardrails as we're going to discuss them, it's beyond the highway, right? The highway, the byway, the roadways, it's not the only place we need a guardrail. Like when we think about this idea of what a guardrail is and what a guardrail would do for us in maybe our lives and maybe our profession and maybe our relationships, maybe with our finances, what we're going to discover is that the roadway, the highway, the byway is not the only place we need a guardrail. That maybe perhaps for some of us, our greatest regrets could have been avoided if we had placed some kind of guardrail in our life. That when we look back, our greatest regrets, no matter what, what they are, it could be if we, if we place some like financial guardrail or some relational guardrail, maybe a professional guardrail, that maybe we could have avoided some great past regret in our life. You see, the reason we're talking about this is that future regrets can be avoided if you're willing to establish some kind of personal guardrail now, that when you consider your future and you consider what's ahead of you, that you can avoid some really disastrous turns ahead, some really disastrous roads ahead if you're willing to place some kind of guardrail ahead right now. Now, the challenging thing as we kind of get into this and we talk about this is that culture doesn't really encourage guardrails, do they? Culture doesn't encourage us to guard. Culture doesn't lack, doesn't like kind of hard, fast rules. Culture doesn't encourage a firm set of standards or guidelines. Culture is perfectly content with painted lines. It's perfectly content with kind of that gray area, with, with, um, with just the painted lines on the side of the road, but don't put anything like a hard, fast guardrail in place. We don't, they, we don't like the rules. Culture doesn't encourage rules. So instead of creating some kind of guardrail, you'll hear culture kind of dictate things to us like this, and you probably have heard this said before, like drink responsibly. But, but really, what does drink responsibly actually mean? Because when, when you think about drinking responsibly, the idea is that at some point, you might drink irresponsibly. And if you're drinking irresponsibly, do you know that you're no longer drinking responsibly? I mean, really. But we say that. Like, that, that's a good idea, but it's really not a good guardrail, is it? Or, or maybe we say things like this, and we've said this to teenagers and to young people in, in college. We say things like, uh, wait until you're ready. And, and my idea is that some woman came up with this advice, and I'm not knocking women with this. This may be great advice for a woman or a mother to give to their daughter, but for a, a dad to give that to the son, and you say, wait till you're ready, do you know what every son's reaction is? I'm ready. 
I, I was born ready, right? That's not a guardrail. That might, might be nice, nice logic. It might be a nice sentiment. But, but really, that's not going to protect you from the danger that's around the corner. Or we, we say things like, like this. Uh, consolidate your debts. Consolidate your debts. Like, take out another debt, a bigger debt, to consolidate you, the debts you have. And while that may seem like a good notion, it's really not a great financial decision, is it? It, do, it doesn't help us along the road. It's a good idea, but not a very good guardrail, not a very good financial standard for us. Or another one, this is one I think I hate the most, is, is just listen to your heart. What's your heart telling you? Like, that's the worst advice you can give someone. Listen to your heart. We have no idea what our heart's telling us. And our heart might tell us something today, and then someone's going to tick us off, and our heart's going to tell us something completely different tomorrow. You know I'm being honest. We've all kind of felt that way. I'm having a little issues with my mic this morning. Culture doesn't like guardrails. Culture, as a matter of fact, disses guardrails. If you kind of place guardrails in your life, you're not going to become the most popular person. You're not going to be the person that culture kind of appreciates the most. No one's going to applaud for you. But if you're willing to put guardrails in your life, what you'll see begin to happen is you'll begin to walk a little wiser. Is, is you'll begin to, to stay within certain boundaries and you won't experience the damage that comes with people who don't have guardrails. You see, culture doesn't like the idea of guardrails. And a great example of this is something that happened just a, a few years ago. We're going to call this the Billy Graham rule. You guys know who Billy Graham is? If you don't, you can Google it. He's like the famous evangelist of America, the preacher of America. He died just a few weeks ago, and throughout his, his term in ministry, he was an evangelist that just preached Jesus and people getting saved. Millions and millions of people around the world came to know Jesus because of his ministry. And it became known in the, in the 60s that he had this rule. And the Billy Graham rule was this, that he would never travel alone with a woman. He would never eat alone with a woman that wasn't his wife or a family member. He would never have a meeting in closed doors where no one else could be with another woman who wasn't his wife or a family member. <clears throat> and in the 60s, this became known as the Billy Graham rule. Well, a, a few years ago, uh, it kind of came known as the Mike Pence rule. It became known that our vice president, he kind of had the same rule for his life, that he wouldn't travel, that he wouldn't meet, that he wouldn't um, um, go to dinner with a woman who wasn't his wife. And what happened? He became ridiculed for it. Culture kind of like sacrificed him and obliterated him and dissed him because he had a standard that became what was the Billy Graham rule, but became known for him as the Mike Pence rule, where he wouldn't do this. And the argument with this rule was that if you keep this standard that's <clears throat> somewhere along the lines, we're going to mistreat women in the workforce, that where they won't have the same opportunity. And, and there might be some truth to that. And in a few weeks, we're actually going to spend a, um, a whole time talking about this, this whole idea of this Billy Graham or this Mike Pence rule. But what I found interesting was that when this came out and people began to mock and to ridicule uh, Mike Pence for this, the Harvard Business Review wrote an article. And they wrote an article that was particularly about this. Here's the title of the article. Men shouldn't refuse. And they kind of put this right out here at the beginning. So there's like no question about what this is. Men shouldn't refuse to be alone with female colleagues. So there's no question. Like, I wonder who this is about. They kind of state it right up front. Here's the title. Men shouldn't refuse to be alone with female colleagues. And their whole idea was that if men do this, you limit women in the workforce, that women don't have the same opportunities, and women can't rise up. <clears throat> and while this, ar this article said some really incredible things, and I'm not like, talking about this to kind of diss this article. I just I want you to state the facts about how culture kind of views us when we set uh, guardrails and guidelines for our lives. <clears throat> so while this article made some really good points, they said something that I found a little hard for us to kind of grapple with and, and, and to apply. So the, the idea is that in the workplace, 
Men and women should, should be able to meet together, have food together, celebrate together, drink together, do whatever they want, because women should have the same rights as men. But if you work in the workplace, you know that, that it's kind of fertile soil for some bad things to happen, right? Because of the camaraderie and the late nights and the working and the traveling, that, that there tends that if, if men were, were to travel with other women or women were to travel with other men that weren't their husbands and weren't their wives, there is a, a, a greater opportunity for something dangerous to happen, for something bad to happen, for something that could could happen that could destroy a relationship or a family or someone's future. <clears throat> no one can deny that the workplace has that kind of atmosphere, has that kind of fertile soil. So in this article, the Harvard Business Review, they said some, some incredible things. I'm going to uh, fast forward to kind of the end of the article um, because this is what I found kind of enlightening. Here's what they had to say. What's an evolved male leader to do? Now, they're addressing particularly with men, so I'm not being sexist by leaving women out. The article was written and addressed towards men. What's an evolved male leader to do? In simplest terms, become what we call a thoughtful caveman. Now, I'm not not really offended by someone telling me I'm like an evolved caveman, but what I find interesting is we never talk about cave women. I'm sure there was a cave woman. I mean, if there was a cave man, there had to be some cave women. Otherwise, men would have went somewhere else and become something else, wouldn't they? But we don't talk about that. They talk about this idea that, that we need to evolve and become these, these thoughtful cavemen. And then they, they wrap it up with this statement that's a little bit of an enigma to me. They say this, healthy, mature, self-aware men understand and accept their distinctly male neural architecture. I don't know about you, but I don't even understand that sentence at all. Right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't get that. But, but to, to make it even, even worse, that if what they're saying is actually true, and they might be, I'm sure, you know, the people at the... Harvard Business Review, are much smarter than me. If what they're saying is true, ladies, here's the question I want to ask you, and this is just to the ladies. How many of these men have you ever seen? Right? How many have you ever seen? Like, I know what some of you are thinking. I've never met one. And, and, and if you do meet one, do me a favor. Capture it and bring it back and let's study it. Because it's like a unicorn. It's like, like, like that rare thing that none of us have ever found. But the truth is this, that, that, that for these men, they don't need guardrails. But they're like, that, like there's like 99.99999% of the rest of men that do need guardrails. For that like 0000001%, maybe they don't. But ladies, it's the men that aren't like this that also make you have to have guardrails in your life. You see, we all need guardrails to protect us, to keep us from making a decision that could cause us more harm in the future, that could sacrifice our future hopes and our future dreams. But when you begin to put guardrails in your life, like Mike Pence did, like Billy Graham did, like we're going to talk about doing, what you need to know up front is culture will not celebrate you. They will not celebrate you. But maybe, just maybe, you have a better chance of reaching your future hopes and dreams. You will not be celebrated, but maybe you'll have the life you've wanted. You see, what I find interesting about this also also with culture is even though they'll make fun of you for having the guardrails, what do they say about the people who mess up? What do they say about the people who, who, who do, you know, become kind of homewreckers and a husband and wife from a, a, a different marriages kind of leave? And, you know, they say horrible things like she's a homewrecker and it's just disgusting. What, what would they say about Mike Pence, our vice president, if he were to travel with a woman and something bad were to happen with an attractive woman? Horrible things would be said. You see, they have no problem d- dissing your guardrails and, and, and making it uncomfortable to set a guardrail. But if you mess up, they're going to be the first ones to attack and point the finger and tell you how much you made a mistake. You see, you may not be celebrated, but I promise you'll have fewer regrets in your life if you're willing to put in guardrails. 
Now, this whole idea of guardrails, this isn't new. This isn't an original idea. This isn't like Jim and Chris and Brian sat in the back room and we had this awesome concept. This idea of guardrails has been around for years and years and years. And really, this idea of, of placing these kind of protective boundaries in place have been around for thousands of years. It happened in our Old Testament, in, in the original uh, uh, Hebrew Bible. It happened in the New Testament with Jesus and Paul and the apostles. And today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. We're going to kind of go through it a little slowly. But we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Paul talks to this group of Christians in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And he begins to tell them and kind of talk to them about how to live your life in a way that, that, that's, that's protected, that has some guardrails, that has some boundaries, so that you live a life with fewer regrets and you end up becoming the person living the life that you've always wanted to have. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul's kind of talking to these groups of Christians. This is a new group of Christians, and he's beginning to, to tell them, he's kind of giving them this, this very typical list of behaviors of things that you shouldn't do and things that you should do, things you want to stay away from and things that you want to move towards. And as he's writing the letter, he's kind of getting this idea that, that, that maybe my audience at this point is thinking, like, okay, this is good. All I, it's just a list of rules. If I stay away from this, I'm good. If I move towards that, I'm good. If I don't do that, I'm all right. And if I do that, I'm good. And, and he began to think, like, there's more to the matter than just the do's and the don'ts. I, I, I got to give handles to this. I got to kind of show them how to practically live it out. Because if you're constantly living your life with a list of do's and don'ts, you, you miss some things in the middle, don't you? So he said, I want to give you some handles on how to do this. I want to kind of teach you what it is to live a life that's guarded, to live a life that has some guardrails. He says this in Ephesians chapter 5. Be very careful then how you live. Like the standard for living for a Jesus follower. Uh, but, but even if you're not a Jesus follower, even if, if you're, um, you, you know, you're, you're new to church and you're new to the faith and you're new to Christianity and, and you're really not even sure what, what, to, what to kind of experience, that there's a standard to live. There's a standard for all of us, no matter who we are and where we kind of fall on the spectrum of where we are in our faith, that there's a standard for how we should live. And he says, be very careful then how you live. And then this Greek word for live, it's actually translated uh, walk. And in some other Bible uh, translations, you'll hear it say, be careful then how you walk, how you live your life, how you move through your life, how, like where you step. So you, you get the idea that, you know, if, you're, if you own a big dog in a small yard, you kind of track with Paul a little through this. Because if you take your big yard or your big dog out into your small yard, you've got to kind of be careful where you walk around and where you step, if, if you know what I mean. Paul's saying it's the same idea with this. Be very careful then how you live. Be very careful how you walk. Watch where you step. Not as unwise, but as wise. Not as unwise, but as wise. And wisdom is always the decision-making template for our life. Wisdom is always the decision-making template. It, 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 it's kind of like when, when we're struggling with a decision to make, and we may not know what's right or what's wrong, and we've always kind of see things in, in that, that kind of lens, what's right and what's wrong. Paul's saying, saying that there's a greater lens for that, and that's wisdom, because there are going to be some decisions, there's going to be some circumstances where you're not going to know what's right and wrong. But if you were to take a step back and to ask yourself, but what's the wise thing to do here? Some new light is shed on your circumstance. New light is shed on the decision you have to make. You see, wisdom almost, almost circumvents, almost goes over top of what's right and wrong because there are sometimes you don't even know what's right or what's wrong, but you do know what's the wise thing to do. And no matter who we are, whether you're, you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, whether you love God or you hated God your whole life, wisdom is kind of that governing device for making good decisions, isn't it? For all of us. Wisdom is that decision-making device for how to make a good decision. It kind of overcomes that whole idea of what's right and, and wrong. And, and the way we kind of word it here is, <clears throat> in light of my past experiences and my current circumstances and my future hopes and dreams, 
what is the wise thing for me to do? In light of my my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? You see, we almost get this idea that all of life is connected, that somehow your past feeds into, into where you are right now, which will ultimately affect your future. Paul says, I want you to learn to walk wisely, not as unwise, but as wise. Be very careful then how you live, how you walk, not as, wise, as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. And literally this means to redeem the time. To redeem your time. To realize that as you're living life, the most valuable commodity you have is time. You can't get it back. But so many of us wish we could. So many of us would say, if I could just go back and, and, and redo my freshman year of college. If I could just go back and relive my high school years, it would be so different. Or, or how about this one? If I could just go back and relive the first year of my marriage man, we'd be so much happier. Man, I, I could have avoided those, those really bad mistakes. Maybe my wife and I would still be together. Maybe we'd have a happy marriage. If I could just go back and redeem the time. And Paul says, you need to live like you realize that time flies by and you can't get it back. There is no going back. So live with that in sight. Live your life realizing that the most valuable thing you have can never be redeemed. It can never come back. Once it's gone, it's gone. And then he says this, because, because, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why, Paul? Because. And then he gives us something that's kind of very odd for us. Because the days are evil. The days are evil. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago. This was written in a time when, when, when culture was, was evil, when people who claimed to be Christians and claimed to follow Jesus, that you know, they would be put to death or sacrificed to lions or crucified on crosses. Like he's saying, be careful because around you, it's dangerous. Around you, culture is very dangerous. Living is dangerous. You've got you to be almost protective and careful, not just how you live, but how people are kind of living and operating around you. And in our culture, we don't see much difference today, do we? Just yesterday, I had to explain to my daughters why it's not safe for them to play in the front yard. We live on a busy road, and if you're playing out there, and I'm in the, you know, the backyard working or in the garage, somebody can drive by, and you know, you're too close to the street. There's no guardrail. You can get hit. Or worse, what if somebody were to come up and, and grab you and snatch you and drive away? I'd never know, and I'd never see you again. You see, it's still very dangerous. There needs to be some guardrails. There, there needs to be some protection, because if we get too close to that danger zone, something bad can happen. Have any of you ever taken like a driver's ed course? When I, when I grew up, I, uh, we took driver's ed. There was an incentive. I grew up in Pennsylvania. And if you took a driver's ed course before you got your license, you got a big discount on your insurance. So it wasn't like an option. My parents pretty much said, you're doing this. So I went to a driver's ed class and I give credit to them. I can park a, like parallel park a 15 passenger van anywhere. I've done it on the streets of Boston. The guy was phenomenal. Taught me a lot about driving. But what I found really interesting is he didn't just teach me how to drive. He taught me how to be careful of all the other drivers on the road. That it's not just me, but you've got to be observant. You've got to know what's going on around you because other people may, not, may have not taken the driver's ed class. And I've seen some of you drive. I'm guessing some of you need that driver's ed class. <clears throat> you, some of them may not know how to drive well. So you've got to be protective. You've got to be careful. You've got to almost drive defensively because you don't know what's going on around you. You see, and I think guardrails are very much the same way for our lives. That, that you, like we, Paul's kind of saying the same thing, that you've got to be observant, not just to how you're living, but to the culture around you and to how culture is living, because what they're doing affects you. 
how they interact with you, how they like, interfere with you. It affects how you live and what you do. And it might affect your future hopes and dreams or living a life without regrets. So be careful. Be careful. Because the days are evil. Because it's not good enough to, to just mind your own business and to protect yourself. But you've got to be observant about what's all going on around you. Because the days are evil. And then he continues, Therefore, do not be foolish. Don't be a fool. Don't live as if life isn't connected. Don't live as if you can do anything you want now and it doesn't affect your future and it doesn't affect your current circumstances. Live knowing that all of life matters, that what you do now is going to be your past someday and that it will affect your, your future current life and your future hopes and dreams. Live as if all of life is con con connected. Live as if you're wise. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And when he says that, it's kind of hard for us to grasp, like, what's the Lord's will? I don't, I don't understand that. And what's interesting is when he says this, this is like an imperative. I don't understand what the Lord's will is. And Paul's kind of saying, understand. We're saying, oh, I got it now. It doesn't make much sense. But it's kind of like that's what he's saying. Understand what the Lord's will is. You have to understand. This isn't a question. This isn't a hope for you. This is an imperative for you. Understand what the Lord's will is for you. And what he's essentially saying is this. You need to acknowledge. You need to face up. You need to stop deceiving yourself. You need to be honest with yourself. You know you. You know how you're living. You know the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. You, like, be honest with the man in the mirror. You know when you're veering too close to disaster. You know where you're kind of treading that line. You know where you've made past mistakes. You know the kind of things that, that, that you're more open to, to trip you up and to mess you up. Be honest with yourself. Know your mistakes. Know the, know the traps that you tend to fall into. Know the right and the wrong thing to do. Stop deceiving yourself, he's saying. Or in other words, you know what you need to do to ensure that you do what you ought to do. You know what you need to do to ensure that you, ought, that you do what you ought to do. And another way of saying that is this. You know where you're dancing too close to that line. You know where you're, where you're kind of too close to that dangerous zone. You know where you're just an imminent like, step away from disaster. Don't kid yourself. And then he gives us this really cool illustration. This is kind of a one thing leads to another illustration this is kind of what guardrails is, right? Guardrail is that one thing that keeps you from that worst thing down the road. You might hit a guardrail, but you're not going to die. That's kind of what guardrails. Paul gives us an illustration of how one thing leads to another thing, of how one bad thing can lead us to something that's much worse if we're not careful. So it's this idea of one thing leads to another, and here's the illustration Paul gives. He says, do not get drunk on wine. Now, this is his illustration. And in the first century, you kind of need to understand what, like, what wine was to them. They couldn't drink water in the first century. Water was dangerous because they had to get, capture water and they would have to store water and it would sit for days and days and days in these dirty jars. And they didn't understand a lot about bacteria back then, but they, they understood this, that if I drink this water that sat around for days and days and days, I'm going to get sick. Or, or, or worse, if it sat around for maybe a few extra days, I could die. So, so we don't drink water. We drink water that's been like wine down or, or, or like, you know, like water wine or wine water, however you want to call it. But th that's what it was. Water was unsafe to drink, so people drank wine. Now, in our culture, in this day and age, it's completely different. We can get the cleanest of the cleanest waters and then pour it through a filter and clean it again. 
<clears throat> this wasn't how it was for them. Everyone drank wine because it was safer to drink than water. And Paul gives them this instruction, do not get drunk, at wine, get drunk on wine, which leads to, it's always going to lead to something else. It's always going to take you somewhere else. Getting drunk on wine leads to other things. And before we even dive into that, I want you to kind of answer this question. Now, don't answer out loud. If you're online and you're watching this at home later on, I want you to check back in, like, like close your Amazon shopping window down, and just focus in on what we're saying from now. I want everyone to kind of tune back in, because I think this is really, really important. When I, if I were to say this statement and leave it up to you, don't get drunk, and we'll just take wine off for a minute. Don't get drunk, which leads to, where would you go? What would come to your mind? Does something come to your mind? Does someone come to your mind? I'm guessing there's someone here or maybe somebody who's watching online later who's saying, I, I wish I just didn't get drunk because it led me to this. I'm wishing I just didn't do that because it led me to this thing. I'm wishing somehow I had a guardrail there. You see, how would it have changed your life if someone said, I'm not going to get drunk? For some of you, what would have happened if your mom or dad learned to stay sober? How would that have affected your life? I mean, we know that would affect their marriage and their life, but how much more would that have affected your life if your parents learned, don't get drunk, because it leads to something worse? You see, we're not going to spend a whole, t a whole lot of time on this. This isn't a whole message on drinking, but I do want to say one thing because we don't, we don't talk about this too often. So I want to say one thing and leave you with this. If more than one person has told you you drink too much, you do. You do. You do. We're going to go back to what Paul says. The problem with getting drunk, and I don't know about you, but it got like really heavy in here really fast. <laughs> I know you're not watching at home, but wow. <clears throat> the problem um, within the context of this passage, the problem with getting drunk is that it leads to something much worse. That drunkenness it isn't like the guardrail. There should be a guardrail before getting drunk because once you're drunk, it leads you to something worse than that. And that's the whole idea of what guardrails are to us. You don't place guardrails in the danger zone. You place them in the safety zone to keep you from what's ahead, from that dangerous thing. So Paul's instructing them, don't get drunk with wine. Don't get drunk. Don't overdo it. Don't live in that excess because there is something dangerous around the corner. And we've seen people struggle with this all the time. And what started off as, as funny, what started off as, as like maybe a, a good pastime, now has become a pathway for someone. And I, and I know like getting drunk should never be the goal, but for some of us, getting drunk is the goal. And, and some of us might snicker, we might laugh at that, but it, it's funny right up until a woman gets punched, and then it's not funny anymore. And it's funny right until somebody drives across the median in oncoming traffic, then it's not so funny anymore. And it's funny, right up until a college student says, all of my friends quit, but I don't know how to quit. And then suddenly it's not funny to us anymore. Because getting drunk will lead you to something else. What started off as a pastime has now become a pathway. And if we're not careful, it'll cause us to live with regrets, and it'll cause us to undo all of our hopes and our dreams for our future. Yet culture will mock us. And culture will make fun of us for our guardrails. But the minute you go too far, and the minute it leads you to something else, they're there to make sure you know you made a huge mistake. Here how, how, <clears throat> sorry, here's how Paul fills in the blanks for us. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to, and he uses a word we don't really talk about, or probably you may have never heard before, debauchery. 
And debauchery is simply this. It's basically a primary sexual indulgence as a, relax, as, as a result of a lack of self-control. It's just us giving into an indulgence because of a lack or a loss of all self-control. That's what debauchery is. Getting drunk, he's saying, this one leads to another. Doing this one thing will lead you to something that will cause you more regret and more pain and cause more harm if we're not careful. You see, the idea for guardrails is that guardrails safeguard us. Guardrails safeguard us from handing over control of our lives to someone or to something. Now, that's a powerful thought. A guardrail will keep you from handing over control of your life. And I know we don't always think of these things as control, but you talk to someone who's in AA who struggled with alcohol, and they'll talk to you about control. Guardrails keep you from surrendering control of your life to someone or to something else. That if you would be willing throughout the, the course of this series to place some specific guardrails where you know you might be weak, where you know you might be prone to something, where you know your family's history and your mom's history and your dad's history and your uncle's history, that they're prone to these kind of things. So I'm going to put a guardrail there. If you'd be willing to place some really specific guardrails in your life, it will safeguard you from releasing or surrendering control of your life over to something or to someone else. It will keep you from surrendering control of your children's lives over to something or to someone else. What would that do for your work life? What would it do for your relationship if you'd be willing to put in some very specific guardrails to safeguard you, to keep you from being mastered by anything or anyone? And that's what Paul tells us later in another passage. He says, don't be mastered by anything. Don't be mastered by anyone. And then he says this. He concludes it with this. Don't get drunk with, on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, so if you're a religious person, he's going to dive into his theology a little bit. And if you're not a religious person, up until this point, everything we've kind of said, that's good wisdom. Like you could live your life that way. It hasn't been so religious. It hasn't been really about how Paul believes about Jesus. This is just good, practical advice that you could apply. You may have never heard it worded like this. You may have not thought about it like this. But as we're talking, you're thinking, yeah, I can see that. I can see what, I'm, what my propensities are. I can see the things I might need to avoid. There's some wisdom there, Jim. I should put in a guardrail. <clears throat> but at this point, Paul's going to dip his finger in his faith. He's going to uncover a little bit about what he believes, that God sent his only son Jesus into the world to die for the sins of mankind, that he really believed that, that he lived his life that way, and now he's going to kind of dip his finger into that faith, into that theology a little bit as he begins to uncover how Christians need to live, how Christians, people who honor God, need to live their lives. And these Christians in Ephesus who are reading this, Here's how you do it. Here's how you safeguard. Here's what I want you to do. Instead of doing this one thing that leads to another thing, instead of getting drunk with wine, which leads to a, a, a debauchery, instead of that, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. The New Testament teaches us that when someone comes to faith, when someone is willing to say, Jesus, I believe who you are, I believe that you said that you are who you are and that you did what you did, when that happens, he says, it's almost like, like the Spirit of God, this Holy Spirit kind of comes in, and not like a weird way, and I know people can get creeped out because sometimes they call him the Holy Ghost. Like, is it a ghost? Is it spooky? Is it creepy? Is he going to freak me out? Is it going to force me to do things? Is it going to kind of take control? Paul's saying it's not like that at all. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to live according to the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. When the Spirit comes inside, it's almost like he kind of comes into your conscience and he just nudges a little bit. He doesn't scream. He doesn't yell. He doesn't take control and like physically move you. It's almost like, like you're about ready to pick up the phone and answer that call. It's like, uh-uh-uh. 
that little nudging. You're about to hit send on that text message. Uh uh uh. You're about to go left when you should be going straight. And it's that little nudging in your conscience. Don't do it. He's saying, What I want you to do, instead of this one thing leads to another, instead of getting drunk, which leads to debauchery, instead of doing this, which will lead you to that, I want you to follow the nudgings of the spirit that's in you. Because when you gave your life to Jesus, when you were willing to surrender, as we talked about this morning, God, I I just surrender and I give it all to you. God says, I sent my Holy Spirit to you. And now he's in on your conscience and he's kind of helping you make, make good decisions, living a life with fewest regrets. Just listen to the nudgings of the Spirit that's already in you. And in conclusion, here's how we could wrap it all up. So be careful how you live. Be very careful how you walk and where you step. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days, because culture isn't working for you, culture is working against you. Because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish. Don't live as if all of your life is disconnected and what you do now doesn't affect your future. But understand what the Lord's will is for you. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to come back to this over and over and over again. Because nobody plans to wreck their life. Just like nobody plans to wreck their car. Like, none of you planned, woke up this morning and said, it's a great day to get in a car accident. Nobody plans to wreck their car. Just like nobody plans to wreck their marriage. And no one plans to wreck their professional career. And no one plans to wreck their relationship with their kids. And no one plans to get into financial ruin and claim bankruptcy. Nobody plans to do these things. Just like nobody plans to get into a car accident. But here's the kicker. Not many people plan not to. Not many people make a plan not to do that. And that's what guardrails are. It's a plan not to fall into disaster. It's a plan not to ruin a relationship. A plan not to ruin your relationship with your kids. A plan not to ruin your professional life and your career and your future hopes and your dreams. A guardrail is there to safeguard you, to keep you from from going down that road to ultimate disaster. It's almost as if guardrails are are kind of like that illustration of defensive driving. It's like defensive living. A guardrail teaches you how to live defensively, how to be aware of the culture that's around you and what people are doing and how it interacts and interferes with your life and how to make sure at the end of it you can be safe. As we said at the beginning, guardrails, they direct and they protect. And you'll find that even if you're new to faith, even if you you were here last week and, and you heard everything we said about Jesus, you're like, yeah, I'm in, but I don't really understand that if you would be willing to place a guardrail now, that if you'd be willing to, to just apply some of this to your life now, that you'd find yourself closer to God. Because here's what's true of this. Stepping away from what can harm you is a step toward the one who loves you. Stepping away from what can harm you is a step toward the one who loves you. And at the end of the day, the discussion isn't simply about becoming better people. The discussion is about becoming more surrendered people. At the end of this series, what we really want for you is not just becoming a better person and a safer person, but becoming a more surrendered person to what God would have for your life. Surrender to the God who loves you, to the God who sent his son to die for your sins so that you could have a relationship with him. So that your life, and this is a big Bible word, would glorify his life. That's my hope over these next few weeks. This isn't just about you, but it is about you. 
And the final question for you is this. Where do you need to start? As we've kind of talked about this, and I'm sure there's been ideas that popped in your head or people that you know need to have guardrails or they wish they had, you wish they had guardrails. What about you? Where do you need to start? What is the thing in your life? What is the propensity? Where are you flirting with disaster? Where are you dancing on that line and you know you need to, you need to shift back in because you're headed towards disaster? What can you do now to begin to shift yourself away from falling into that ledge? Where do you need to start? At some point, we've all got to face it. At some point, we've all got to deal with it. Either we deal with it now or we deal with it after we've fallen off that ledge and we face disaster. At some point, kind of as Paul said, we've got to stop fooling ourselves and we've got to be willing to say, here's my propensity and I need a guardrail here. Here's where I'm headed and that's bad and that's disaster and that's death. I, I need a guardrail here. At some point, all of us need to be able to look at that man in the mirror and say, here's what I need to do. Where do you start this morning? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for this incredible passage of Scripture. I thank you for this whole idea, God, that we can live a life that, that God keeps us, keeps our dreams intact, keeps our hopes intact, keeps us, God, from living a life of so much regret. And it's so easy for us to look around and see the mistakes in other people and see that if they just stopped or they just shifted or they just didn't go there, that they would be better off. I pray that throughout the course of this, these next few weeks, as we dive into this idea of guardrails and how to have guardrails, maybe in our relationship and our finances and in our careers, God, I, I pray that, that you would give us the wisdom to place the guardrail where they need to be and that it would keep us from that disaster. And that it would help us to walk wisely as it concerns, God, our future hopes and dreams. I thank you for every person here. I pray that you'd give us the courage to do that, even when it's hard. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Before you guys.